Hello, Linsiders. Welcome to episode 14, the final episode of season one of the Linsiders. Thank you for joining me all through this season. What started out as just an experiment in March, now 14 episodes later, and almost three months later, we are now winding down the first season. Today, I have a very special guest, a good friend of mine who I've known since 2004, Ming Beaver Quay. Beaver, before we get to Beaver, I want to share with you just some thoughts and acknowledgements for the season. And I guess before I do that, I want to discuss a little bit give you a preview of what I have in mind for season two. I plan to take a couple months off. Don't go anywhere. I'll definitely be back. Just be patient. I need some break and some time off to plan out the next season and get some other things going. But when I come back next season, expect a slightly different format. So at season two, I believe it will be a bit more condensed, maybe eight to 10 episodes. And through that eight to 10 episodes, I'm going to discuss my experience in the industry a little bit further. I'm going to spend probably the first few episodes talking about my experience and my observations of the industry, both in the US and in Asia. And I'm going to also talk about where I hope to go in the industry and where I hope the industry also moves and give some reflections on some of the trends and news that we see in the industry recently. So that's going to be season two. I don't exactly have a timeline, but I will keep you all posted through social media. So please stay tuned. Now on to this episode with Beaver. Beaver and I discuss his career. I've known Beaver, like I said, for many years, and I've known that he filmmaking is a part of his family business. This is one thing that I really enjoyed talking about and vocalizing because there's so much dialogue about how filmmaking and Hollywood, it's for uh, a certain type of folks. And I think that is what I've been trying to deconstruct here, that sort of narrative in The Insider and in this podcast and in the stories that I want to show. I want to highlight other voices and show that there are great filmmakers and filmmaking families of Asian descent and to highlight those people. So I believe you'll really enjoy this episode with Beaver. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Beaver Quay. Thanks for listening. All right, this is episode 14, and I have Beaver Quay with me. Beaver, welcome to The Linsider. Thank you for making time. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. You are my last guest for season one. Wrapping it up, we've done 14, 13 of these. You're number 14. And that's enough for season one. I will be back at some point with season two. So since I'm the last, who was the first? 
The first was my friend Kenny Liu. He's an actor. He went to Berkeley and had a very traditional career as an engineer. He was part of the Cal Wushu team, did Wushu, competed, and then decided after his career as an engineer, he wanted to pursue acting. So he made like a career switch in his late 20s and is now an actor. Okay, so your book ended by UC graduates. Great. That's right. Exactly. Beaver. So we know each other for a long time now. Like yes. more than 15 years, going back to 2004. Long yeah. time. Yes. Beaver, you work, well, you're a film producer, an executive, and your, your daughter is going to Bates in the fall. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Drink that again. See? Yeah. And currently we are, you are, you, we are, we are recording this remotely, but we're both in LA. Surprisingly, I'm actually here in Los Angeles. Yes. Welcome back. To start, this is the question that I usually ask all my guests. I, I like starting by having everyone talk about their origin story. So I'd love for you to just kind of tell everyone where you're from, who you are, and then at some point we'll get into questions about how you got into entertainment and why. Sure. Okay. So I will try to condense it into a five minute version. It's a bit complicated, but we will endeavor to try to, to do that. Yeah. So, well, I, I was born in Hong Kong, um, but we're not from Hong Kong. Some people might know that my father was a fairly active movie director for a Hong Kong movie studio called Shaw's Brothers back in the 1960s and the 1970s. He's, you know, he, he has a revival lately around the world in China, also in Asia, due to the online presence of his film. So while he Wait, was and what's working- what's your father's name? His name is Guai Zi Hong, Guai okay. Zi Hong, Guai Zi okay. Hong. You can find him on Wikipedia. Yeah, and he's, he's on there. I'll him in the show notes. Yeah, he's, he's, he's all over the, he's, he's on Billy Billy. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely. So, you know, so he's, uh, he's, he's had a following now. So he worked in Hong Kong. So I was born in Hong Kong. So I mostly grew up in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Went to kindergarten in Taipei, primary school in Hong Kong, and high school in Southern California. So my entire family uh, immigrated to the United States or re-immigrated back to the United States in the uh, 1980s because my grandfather was actually born in the United States as well. He, he, uh, he, was, he went to Cornell here. I was just talking to some kids the other day. My grandfather went to Cornell and graduated there in 1922, mechanical wow. engineer. Yeah, so he worked in Detroit in the 1930s, strangely. Wow, and Detroit was like the Paris of the U.S., basically. Yeah, so he worked at a, as a draftsman for Ford. I think. Oh, wow. In the 1930s, 19, early 1930s. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And then, and then he moved back to San Francisco. And then during World War II, he went back to China to fight the Japanese. Uh, what? And then, yeah. There are a lot you of. Have, like this of, amazing family history. A lot of people, overseas Chinese, went back to China to yeah, help the war effort. You know, so yeah, my yeah. grandfather was one of those. So Was he, was he part of the Flying Tigers? No. No, no, he, he engineered by Trey. So I think he was mostly dealing with power plants, locomotive, so on and so forth. I think he was chased by the Japanese during World War II. So they all escaped to Hong Kong uh. during the war and so on and so forth. So, but anyway, so, okay, it's five minutes, almost up. Anyway, so, <laughs> 
So I pretty much spent my youth here in Southern California, went to high school here, went to college here, and then study film. And then, of course, the various sort of post-graduation type of media industry kind of beginner's job. And then I got lucky and I ended up working for someone that Jason knows very well, our, both of our boss. And then mm-hmm. and it started my career kind of that way. And then it's been now 30 years, 30, 30 close to 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. A movie industry career. Yeah. And a lot of amazing films that you've been a part of. I mean, this might seem like a no brainer, but for a lot of people like, you know, deciding to move into and be in the entertainment industry is like a big decision for you. You have your father is a director, but for you, what was it that attracted you to the industry and how early did you know that you wanted to work in entertainment? And was- I, I always wanted to be in films because I grew up on the Shaw Brothers studio a lot in Hong Kong, in Kowloon. So oh, wow. when I was, you know, back in, back, in those, back in those days in the 60s and 70s, it was a studio system in Hong Kong. So everybody lived on a lot. So your movie stars, your directors, your creative heads, all your craftsmen, they, they all live in sort of studio dormitories there, but they have different tiers, you know, so the nicer ones for the, the actors and the directors and then the medium ones for the art director and cinematographer and then just general ones for, you know, your carpenters and your painters. It's, it's easily accessible for me to walk on set onto the studio lot to mm. go visit my dad or to just wandering around and then talk to other uncles, we call them susu, you know, other mm-hmm. directors who are shooting there. So, and then, you know, you know, they know you, the, 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 the talent, the actors and actresses, they know you. So, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's that kind of an environment that grew up in the entire process, throughout the whole process. My mom also worked on this, on a studio lot. She was at one point a Foley artist and they did all their Foley artists uh, work at night. So I would uh, finish school and take my school work and go to the uh, sound recording stages and go upstairs to the projection room because the projectionist was my tutor <laughs> for my math. So, you know, I would be in the projection room and back in those days, it's all negatives. So they, you know, they, they put all these uh, prints in loops and mm-hmm. then, so they would keep on playing it. And then downstairs, you know, the, the Foley artists would do all their martial art film, you know, the, the sores hitting each other, the closing door, open door, all the horses, hoof sounds were coconut shells, you know, so they're doing that. And I'm upstairs doing my home and then I would go downstairs and check out my mom. And then, so the engineers would know me. And then, so I would sometimes go visit my dad at the print lab, you know, where they do all the answer print printing. So you know all the strips of negative and um, positive prints on, on, you know, on the, in the room with all the chemical smells and all that kind of stuff. So so it's kind of in my genes. My dad really didn't want me to get back into the film industry because, as everybody know and Jason probably know, it's it's a very difficult industry mm-hmm. to survive in. And he though was a prolific director, still had a hard time. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't easy for him. So he wanted, you know, like, I think like all Asian parents who come to the United States, they want their kids to have stable employment, you know, to go be a doctor, be a lawyer, you know, you know, whatever. So he did not encourage me to get back into the film industry, but you know, it's, it's something that I grew up with. So, you know, I decided to study film. Yeah, what did you want to do? Well, that's the thing. So 
I actually really wanted to be editor. Mm. So okay. when I was at school at UC Irvine, I think that was the dawn of digital editing. So, you know, I took a lot of editing classes. We, we were moving from the, the Moviola thing to online digital editing platforms. So back in those days, I, uh, those days, I think it was Premiere 2. Point something, 2.3 or something like that. And then Avid was just, just starting. So we were learning all of that. The it was called nonlinear editing back in those days. So I was learning that. But while I was at school, I think I just had some, some capability as, as the person that could help put everything together. I guess today you would call that producing, but back mm -hmm. in those days, you just out like begging people to, to come on and to, to do a, a shoot for student mm -hmm. shoot. So, you know, so kind of got the hang of that a little bit. So even though after school, after graduation, I actually was doing an internship at a, a trailer editing company in mm. Beverly Hills for six or seven months. They were, they were teaching me how to cut trailers using, I forgot what the platform was. It was a digital platform. It was really clunky back in those days. But I ended up really getting, starting my career, so to speak, getting a job as a producer's assistant. Mm. And, and then, and then I turned out, it was actually something that I was okay. I, I could, I could handle. So, and it just kind of kept going that way. But, you know, in the last 30 years, I, I have always been very keen on editing and mm -hmm. it's easy for me to talk to editors because, you know, I learned, you know, kind of learned that a bit yeah. and then I kept up with it. Craft. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, with Jet, we do a lot of action films. So you're mm -hmm. always in the editing with all the action directors and they're always saying, you know, you got to cut it like this, cut it like that. And then so, you know, and then they all speak Cantonese, they don't speak English. So I'm doing all the translation with the uh, Western editors. So I'm mm -hmm. kind of learning it as, as we go, that's like, good. oh, that's how you're supposed to cut it, the action sequences. So, mm. you know, so that's, I, w I wanted to be an editor, but I didn't. <laughs> right. Well, it's a great skill regardless in learning how to tell the story. And what kind of stories did you want to tell? Like, was it the, did you want to tell those type of stories that your dad did? Or was it, did you want to be? No, my dad, my dad, my dad, I think my dad was defined by two types of genres that he did. One was the sort of the mafia genre, a little bit exploitative, but I don't think that was his desire. I think that was just a Shaw's Brothers studio sort of directive. Mm -hmm. um, if you would compare him to a U.S. filmmaker, I think he himself would like to have compared himself to Martin Scorsese in the early days, like the taxi driver, you know, that, that type of uh, genre of mafia sort of gangster type of films. Mm -hmm. uh, not the ex exploitation type. And he was popular and famous for his uh, mafia films in mm -hmm. Hong Kong. And this is before all the later stuff that came. And then yeah. the second type of films that he sort of gravitated towards to later on in his careers were all of these horror films that he did, mm -hmm. all the cult films, the, yeah. the hex, the, 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 you know, the, I don't, I don't know what the English names of these films are, but, you know, and, that all, he, he had, he actually enjoyed doing horror films. In the beginning, there was one that I really enjoy. It was called Ghost Eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. It was about some girl who was uh, washing hair at a salon and, and uh, her glasses broke. And then some client came in and say, come to my store. I give you free contact lenses. And then when she put on the contact lenses, she, you know, 
bad things happen to her. Mm. It was a really good film. It was shot in yeah, the seventies. Sounds interesting. Yeah, but his his sort of desire or interest to really get into the cult um, horror films was after his his sort of visit in Malaysia, where Shaw Brothers sent him down to Malaysia to shoot a bunch of Malaysian films. And mm. that's when he actually kind of found out about the Malaysian voodoo practice and all that. Mm. And then that sort of inspired him to use a lot of that material for his subsequent sort of horror films. But neither of those genres are my cup of tea. I am at heart a big sci-fi and action guy. So yeah. if, if, I, if given a chance, I would do an action film or a sci-fi film. And of course, with, you know, Jed, <laughs> that's all we did, which yeah. is fine by me. I, you yeah, know, just and sci-fi, like the one. A little bit right. of sci-fi. Yeah, I, I think for the one, I, you know, I really pushed for that because I was like, man, I really wanted to do sci-fi. And then we had a chance to work with uh, James Wallen and Glenn Morgan. You know, they were X-File guys back in those days. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, and Jed was like, Sci-fi, I'm not too sure. I did Black Mass, you know. I don't know what I want to do. That's a classic that too. Yeah, you know, but you know, he's into the real action stuff. But yeah, you know, he was he was you know he was uh, game for it. He went all the way. He got really into it. You know, he did the whole replacing. You know, because you know, originally the the one was for The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Oh what? No, I didn't know that. What? Oh yeah. So originally the the script was written for The Rock for Dwayne Johnson. And when we got the script, it was wow. all like, you know, the 1990s macho, yeah. like Stallone, Arno type, you know, action. And he had some scheduling conflict or something like that. And so he couldn't be on the film. And uh, so the producers, Glenn Morgan and James, I said, why don't we go to Jet Lee? So, you know, he, they, they, and they came to Jet and said, here's the script. Would you be interested in doing this? And Jed's like, well, that's interesting, but you know, I'm not going to be the rock. If you can work with me to create something different, mm-hmm. then I'll be interested. You know, that's what he said. And then those guys are like, yeah, yeah, sure. I think the initial thing was, I think the initial thing Jed pitched them was that, you know, it's two of him, right? He said, well, why don't we have one guy, the good guy, use one type of martial art that not only visually and stylistically looks different, but meditatively and then also philosophically, it's different. Whereas mm-hmm. the bag jet uses a different Chinese martial art that's more powerful, more straightforward, and then it's more blunt. And so that we are contrasting two different martial art philosophies with each other. Mm-hmm. And when they heard that, they're like, great let's do it that way Uh, oh yeah and we were shooting uh kiss of the dragon in switzerland at that point i think we were shooting nights we were in the hotel doing the all the hotel scenes and then uh, so glenn and james they flew over to switzerland and spent uh a week or i don't remember a week or two weeks with us so jet would shoot at night and then he would wake up a little earlier than everybody else. I think he wakes up like around 11 mm-hmm. or 12. Like we would wrap around six or seven and he shoot mm-hmm. until 11 or 12. Wow. Get up, meet the guys for script meeting from 12 noon all the way to six, five or six until they call him to go for, uh, you know, go, go on set for hair and makeup. 
-hmm. And then the guys would then go work and then they would go and sleep and then they would have something modified and then next day we'll do it again and then they'll say, okay, this is what we got. And then, and then we'll go over and then we'll just keep going. I don't remember. We, I think we did this for at least a week or two weeks. And he, it was wow. really cool because, you know, so he, he doing the script meeting, he would like demonstrate. The martial you know, arts? The, the martial arts, would be like Tai Chi is this way, and then the Xing Yi is this way, you know, you know, the, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it really kind of gave him an education of the difference between the two martial arts styles and philosophically wow. the difference between uh, these two styles and so on and so forth. So anyway, that so that that's, you know, the, the Jet Li sci-fi <laughs> thing that we did on the one. Wow, yeah. I love hearing that. I, th I don't think a lot of people see that side you know both like what i take away from that is like yeah like he under he has such a a deep knowledge of story even though most people just think he's like you know kicking ass but the story and the character work i think has always been there and that's something that really sets um him apart and then from what you said i was also very curious in the and, and then so now with that experience, and actually what I wanted to go, go to is that you mentioned earlier on, you got, you were, you got into the industry and then you're working in Hollywood and you're working for a producer, I guess, can you just share a little bit about like in that time, what is that like to try to get a start in Hollywood? Because you grew up in Hong Kong on, you said the Shaw brothers lot, and that's a, different system. What was that like for you to enter into the Hollywood system? What were the surprises and challenges? I, I actually, I think it's just as difficult. I, I think, you know, it, it's just difficult to break into the entertainment industry. You always, you're always, you, you, when you start, you're always going, where am I going to find my job, my first mm -hmm. job or my second job? You know, how am I, you know, how am I going to tell these people that might hire me that I actually, you know, it, you know, has something to co contribute. And at the beginning, and I, I think in, even in Hong Kong, you know, in China, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I've been now in China for 15 years and then we see a lot of young people getting into the industry. Uh, you need a little bit of luck and then you, you still need connections. You know, you still need to sort of network and know people. But of course, you're, you're networking with people at your level, you know. Mm -hmm. So and then but sometimes when you network and you are a bit lucky, you meet people that that can help you when they hear of a possibility or an opportunity. And then, mm -hmm. you know, and then you you know, you, you seize it and then, you know, enroll with it. And it's been the same when I started in Hong Kong back in those days, in the 60s and 70s, it's was, it was a little bit different because the Hong Kong film industry, and it, even today now, but I think Hong Kong industry now, it's not like what it used to be, but mm. um, mostly is a apprenticeship program. So yeah. you, 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 you have a teach, you have a mentor, you know, you ha whatever craft trade that you're doing, you start, you know, as the very junior person. Now, how you get that, how you get to be that person, I don't know. From the 1960s, 70s, I'm too young. I, I, I was too young. I, I wouldn't know how those people got their, their um, start. But mm -hmm. once you're in the system, you know, you, you start out as somebody's student for quite a bit uh, yeah. time before you, you know, you move up. 
Whereas in Hollywood, back in the late 80s, early 90s, it, it really is still networking. You, you know, you still have to go out and meet people and then talk about who you are and what you do and then, and, and, you know, help each other. I mean, I got my first job as a producer's assistant through a job listing board back in those days. I mean, back in the uh, mm -hmm. late 80s, early 90s, the internet was very rudimentary, but at least yeah. there was a, a posting board for all those college grads that were doing films and mm -hmm. their job listings. I got, I got a job from that. But my second job, actually, with Jet, immediately was through my friends who were looking for work and then yeah. found this opportunity and then told me about it, you yeah. know? So it, it was still, I, you know, I, you know, to this day, I'm very grateful to my friends who, who found that job for me. And right. a lot of the young people that we work with today, they find, you know, they find employment with us is still through networking, you know, I, you know, so, it, I, you know, I would a lot of times have my colleagues in the industry, whether it's in the U.S. or in China, would say, hey, so, you know, there are young people who, you know, who graduated from here, they're whatever, they're looking for a job. Do you guys have openings, you know, for internship or for entry levels? And then so, you know, and in, and in production, that's even more prominent where you definitely need recommendations from crew members or uh, people who, you know, been doing this quite a bit of time and then they yeah. would recommend you. Yeah, it's, it's still the same, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's a great perspective because I guess where I was going with that question, I was actually wondering about any challenges just being, you know, from Asia or, you know, not from like some sort of family, like from in Hollywood, right? Are there mm -hmm. challenges there? But I like how you just really boiled it down that at the end of the day, there's ways to get in if you want to. And it's about, you know, networking and putting the time in to figure things out. Yeah, I, I actually did not. And I mean, the limited time that I had working in the industry before Jed, I did not encounter any kind of racial profiling or prejudice. I mean, you know, people who interviewed me for jobs just interviewed me as, as a person who graduated from college and, you know, has limited experience, but, you know, do film. My pedigree did not apply because it's Hong Kong, right? Doesn't yeah, work. right. And, and I got hired based on what I said. And, you know, and I don't, you know, I didn't think there was any sort of like, hey, you know, you're Asian and, you know, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't do this or whatnot. But of course, I've, I've heard other people back in those days. I had a lot of Korean friends back mm. in those days in the late 80s and early 90s that they had a glass ceiling. Uh, mm -hmm. in the industry where they could only get to so far and then they right. couldn't move up anymore. And a lot of these people got frustrated and moved back to South Korea. And then now they're all captains of the industry. You know, they took yeah. what they learned here in the United States and applied it back in their home. And, mm. you know, they're very successful in their home country. But mm. in, in those days, from the employment as a point of view, it seems like there were some sort of unintentional or intentional, whatever, sort of deterrence for, or, or difficulty for maybe for, like for Asians to, to move up as fast as, say, other you know, racial groups, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, just, you know, but if you... Focus on that. That's the wrong energy. Focusing on actually putting the work in and, you know, finding the opportunity. That's where we should all focus on. Another question I have for you is, you know, 
you saw it, you know, when you were younger and then you worked for Jetland. And so you saw also like, you know, just the, the amazing, and then it's your personal interest too, in terms of action films. And nowadays, you know, one thing I've wondered is that like action films are something that the Hong Kong talent, and I would say like, you know, in China and Asia, it's so well known and it travels. Why do you think it is that like now kind of the action film genre, like in Asia, it's not, it doesn't travel as much anymore. Like those films now that are being made are very local. It's much more rare to have those films travel, but there was a period of time when they traveled very well. Yeah, there was a time starting with Bruce Lee, right? And then yeah. it went all the way to Jackie, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, and then, you know, and Donnie. then Donnie, and then the Trey Huck movies, and, you know, right. all, all of that. There, there was a period that when that happened, and then all the Wu Ping stuff that, 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 that was very popular in the West, and then it kind of accumulated with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And then it kind of seemed like after that, it just started to kind of faded out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Hero and then all the Zangimo films, right? After that, those were, I feel like, cult classics here too. Right. And then it became more Western films had more authentic martial arts integrated into their storytelling. Right. And so then, you know, and what's happening with, with Asia in terms of, well, I mean, there was a period when the Korean action film had a bit of inspired storytelling, so to speak. You know, like when old they boy. Had yeah, oh boy, you know, they had a different style of fighting and so on and so forth. I think the way it had to, the way, the reason why, I think the key is innovation. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, there's still innovation in Asia. It doesn't matter. Is it, you know, China or Hong Kong or, you know, Korea? But it's just not as prevalent uh, as it used to be. And it has to also do with viewers, viewers, um, in in Chinese, this is called, which is, I guess in English, would the, be, taste, the taste and the trends, right? The trend, yeah, taste, a diminishing return, so to speak. It, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, in the West, most people don't really go and make spectacular Western anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Because everybody's seen so much of it. And there's so many different ways you, to tell this Western story has been done. So now... Even though when you do a Western, it's 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 just harder to do. So yeah. I think the, the the traditional martial art films in Asia runs a similar sort of pattern with the Western pattern with the Western pattern here in the West. And then on top of that, innovation and innovation in storytelling, and then also in technology. That's just just for some reason that's just less of that is being done in Asia. Than, than in the West in terms of how to integrate martial art into different kinds of storytelling and yes. then also yeah. using technology and then research and development to improve on the way that it can be realized on screen. And, yeah. and that, you know, it's, it's you know, the, the, there's always a possibility for a second renaissance of the genre in Asia. Yeah. It just takes filmmakers who, you know, who have a strong interest in doing this. Maybe at this period in time, Maybe we just, you know, don't have a lot of filmmakers that are interested uh, in doing this. Just like right. in the West, like a lot, probably most Western filmmakers right now are not, you know, if you say, what kind of films do you want to make? I don't think, you know, the, the first film they say they want to make is, I want to make a Western. You know, right. 
maybe they say, yeah, I want to make a Western. Or very few. At some point, I want to make a Western, you know, a yeah. cool looking Western. You know, I have some thoughts about how to do it differently. But it's not like I want to go make a Western. So, mm-hmm. you know, for Chinese or I don't know, Japanese or Korean filmmakers, maybe, you know, not the first thing they in their mind would be like, I want to go make a martial arts film. And then also the second thing is, you know, action stars takes time to cultivate. And we don't have to mix, you know, Jet Li or Jackie Chan or Donnie yet you know so that takes time as well i mean if you if you go back and look at historically i mean jackie's made so many action films in hong kong before he matured into what he ultimately became internationally and same with jet you know and so it takes time you know yeah so, a lot of time yeah i mean even look at like wu jing right he's maybe the closest right but it took it took him forever it did. Trouble. It did. And then not all the Jackie's film or Jet's film or Wu Qing's films were, were you know, great. You know, some mm-hmm. were not that good, but they had to persist. And so in our modern sort of 21st century kind of social media, short ex- attention spans kind of entertainment space, is there room for these type of cultivation? I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe it has to take an innovative form. And yeah. whatever that innovative form is, somebody has to discover it and it yeah. hasn't been discovered yet. Yeah. I like what you're saying. It's basically it, things need to evolve, right? right? And move with the market, move with the audience. And so then in terms of your career, you started in Hollywood, spent a lot of time working with Jet, which is around the world. And then later on, you, for the last 15 years, you've been in China. And in China, you know, though you mentioned that your the type of films that you like to make are action and sci-fi, in China, like a lot of your initial and early films are very kind of not that genre. They're dramas or they're comedies or love stories. I guess talk a little bit about how you decided to go and pursue that opportunity in China. And then the films and the stories that you you decide to produce, like how did, how did you decide, you know, which how did you decide which ones to pick? Okay, okay. I, I think the decision to go back to China uh, deeply rooted from you know the the historical presence of my dad, you know, being a filmmaker in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. I have a awareness of that, you know, but I didn't want to go back to Hong Kong. Because I knew, you know, what a Hong Kong film industry existence would look like. And I kind of did that already with my dad, you know. I mean, people always ask me, hey, why, how come you didn't want to be a director? I said, I, you know, my dad made, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 films. Mm. I've, I've participated in these experience of directing 40, 50, 60 times or 30, 40 times already. And that's not an experience that I need to go and relive again mm. so i didn't really i didn't really needed to do the hong kong experience and china mm. was always fascinating to me it continues to fascinate me it fascinates me but back in those yeah. days and so that was already in the back of my head and then i was a, a bit frustrated with hollywood and these and this is something i think i, I don't know what a jet would remember but we, we talked to, i talked to him a little bit about it it's just that back in those days the type of scripts that were given to us presented to us there, there wasn't a really productive sort of asian narrative that could be much more powerful 
than the what the stereotypical Asian narrative that we were given back in the 1990s or early 2000. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, we were always, you know, these action films, you know, they, they can be pretty genre driven. So we were always, when we were reading scripts, we were always, you know, telling the producers, can we not have this scene in another illegal Chinese immigrant downtown Manhattan laundromat or textile shop? Can yeah. we not have naked Chinese prostitute female bodies in trash cans? You know, can, you know, can we have Chinese people actually speaking proper English and they, mm -hmm. they don't have to all speak broken English or not at all, you know, so it was just, it's just a constant struggle to, to try to replace that with something that can be just as entertaining, but slightly different. And, and so, also more true to actual real life. Because right. I mean, you, you, you can, see, yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't mind in this narrative that you have some Asians that, you know, that are fresh off the boat, and, but yeah. there are also Asians that have been here for a long time. So yeah. you don't have to be, you know, all one right. type or another. Yeah. And so that was a bit frustrating. And so at that point I, I said, well, you know what, if it was difficult to, 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 to work on really good narrative here, I want to take a crack at it from the other side. Mm. Maybe we can show the world, you know, that there can be good Chinese story that can be told in a very modernized way. Yeah. So, that was the intention, and and you know, and and then the early two thousand, you know, China was a brand new place, and mm -hmm. uh, it was fascinating. So, and at that point, Warner Brother wanted to go and you know and start an initiative, so bring some technology into China. And Warner Brother has a history of doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, they they've you know, I think they they did the first co-production with Hong Kong on Enter the Dragon, right, with yeah. Bruce Lee and Raymond Chow right. back in the yeah. those days. So they had, they do have a history of that. So, so you know, go back and, and, you know, it's a brave new world. But the minute that I got there, uh, I realized that, oh, it was literally, you know, doing everything from the ground up again. They, you know, they, they, just, they just started. So, you know, so they were trying to figure out how to do genre films, you know, and uh, a lot of the the parts of movie making was do the modern sort of the what we take for granted now the sort of the modern filmmaking mechanisms were just starting in China back in those days. I mean, they make great films, you know, because Zhang Yimou did great films yeah. in the nineteen nineties, and Chen Kai Ge, you know, Feng Xiaogang, you know, those are yeah. fantastic movies. Actually a lot of great films. A lot of great films, but to, to try to do this genre material, you know, the commercial, that took a little bit of work. So in mm -hmm. the beginning, so it was like, let's not even just go and try to make an action film. Let's just let's just make some films, you know, whether mm. it's a romantic comedy uh, or uh, drama. And, you know, let's, let's, let's bring in various types of technology and skill sets and see whether or not they can be integrated. Whether is it from the storytelling, you know, from the script stage to production stage to post-production stage and, you know, or the visual effects stage and see, you know, how it can be done. One of the big things that we were trying to do, it doesn't matter what the, the genre was, was to do sort of the, you know, the integrated film, uh, film production where, it was already being done in the West was using VFX as part of 
storytelling that VFX would seamlessly blend into the storytelling without you noticing that there was VFX involved. Yeah. And that workflow, that protocol, meaning that the pre-planning and po uh, and pre in pre-production, and then the discipline that one must have during production, and then the sort of the application and then the realization of all that planning and then the the discipline in production and then being realized in post-production. That was something new for China in those days. So, you know, and then so we were, you know, so when we were doing Sophie's Revenge, which is a romantic comedy, it, you know, it was technologically speaking. And then also workflow-wise, that was quite innovative at that time is because you literally have to have your production design, your cinematographer, your VFX supervisor, and your director and you know the whole team pre-plan everything out before we started the film and then when you're shooting you know it's you know you're shooting parts and then everything gets put together in post which is something very simple nowadays or even back in those days for the u.s but it was something that was just at its infancy stage back in those days in china now everybody yeah. does it it's you know, it, you know it's very easy now but that was exciting did you at that time because i mean that movie i think stood out in so many ways so i would say it was a very pioneering film did you guys realize that oh yeah yeah we we went into it knowing that we are trying something new we didn't know whether or not it will work and but i think at, at that moment you know if you want to pioneer china is the place to go mm -hmm. And, and it continues to be so, you know, so yeah. that's what's so exciting about the Chinese film industry is where you can continue to pioneer and, and try things out and, you know, come up with something exciting and different and innovative. Yeah. And I, I mean, another thing is like, I want to, I want to say like, it feels like there's also to some extent what people like to focus on in the West is like, they like to criticize China about certain things and it's always the same criticism. Whereas it actually working and living in China, you realize actually there's a lot less baggage in some ways in China. For example, like on Sophie's Revenge, you guys had a female director and that film broke box office records at the time, right? And did you guys know, like feel that that was like a special or unique thing as well? Or was it just, you know, that was how the project came together? Well, I mean, you know, the story was from the director, from Eva. So it was right. her project, her script. Right. You guys uh, had to realize her talent and back her. Yes. But, you know, in interacting various companies and then also with the crew or just the general perception of and the project, there wasn't anything like, oh, it was a female director or it's a... I think the only thing that we encountered that people were hesitant was that people weren't sure that the Chinese audience would like a classic romantic comedy, a screwball, almost a little bit of a slapstick romantic comedy at that point. Mm -hmm. That was something that was untried and that the hesitation was there. But And then we had to prove ourselves in the prep and during production period to people that, oh, this is what 
it will look like and mm. you know what it might have a shot you know so what did but, you guys draw upon to make it more familiar to the chinese audience that's a really good question nothing nothing about that was familiar to the chinese audience but i can remember i mean i feel like actually the, the, the talent right the two actors yeah. uh in that film all, all four all four actresses in that film were familiar with the with the chinese audience yeah so that they anchored it for us you know yeah so I mean, in some ways, you you paid homage to like a Hollywood style of romantic comedy. But also, I feel like growing up, when I watched things in Taiwan or Hong Kong, like content there, like especially TV shows, like there is some like kind of that kind of silly rom com kind of stuff back in those back in that days. It's just oh, yeah, you haven't absolutely. seen it on the big screen yeah, in China. Yeah. Well, my dad was making this type of films. In the early '60s, yeah, uh, it's not early mid '60s, I think. Uh, so, but there's 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 traces of that. I mean, so you know, we're we're familiar with that heritage, so we we you know we had to modernize it a bit, you know. And mm -hmm. the the good thing about it was that the filmmakers and the talents in, in that film, you know, they 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 all you know they all understood that, and then they were they were game, you know, they want to try something different, try something new. So mm -hmm. it just luckily it worked out, you know. Yeah. And what and for you, yeah, now and what is what is the type of story that you look for that you're drawn towards? Because as I look at your credits, I would say like you know if I go like the Precipice Game, right? That is groundbreaking in its own way too. Then you have the Meg, which is also very groundbreaking, being a co-production that succeeded so phenomenally, and all these other projects that you're doing, they're all I would say. Like I think, like it's a pretty notable thing that I would I see that that's like traces. Like it seems like you're trying to do something different each time, like pushing things in a certain way. Is that deliberate, or do you think that's just what the, where the opportunities are that you found? No, it is deliberate. So for me, I'm always trying to try something new, which with each project. That I was part of, whether it was given to me as an assignment, or it was something that that whoever approached me and said, "Hey, would you be interested?" Of course, if 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 there wasn't something interesting different about it, then I wouldn't be interested. But even for assignments that are sent sent to me, I I would gravitate toward ones that had some kind of challenge that that we have to meet and excel in. So, and and then at heart, now that I am I've been doing this for a while. I know that I am pretty much a, a B movie person, so <laughs> so I gravitate toward a, a bit more the genre material. But I'm not I'm I am not dark as my father. Mm -hmm. My father is very dark. I don't like to tell stories that are very very dark. I I think it just I I think you know for me my everybody's different. But for me, yeah. I think there's enough darkness in the world that if we're given an opportunity to present some lightness. I would, I would, I would choose to present the lightness. If other people want to yep. hit harder on the darkness, go for it. That's you know, that's you know, that that's they 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 can go ahead and do that. And I, yep. I just don't want to do that on my end. Mm -hmm. Got it. And being in China for as long as you have, like, and having a background as a very cross-cultural person, like, you've basically spent your life between Asia and the U.S. Like, 
what are some of the challenges that you've seen or what advice i guess do you have for folks that are trying to navigate the two because i feel like it's a it's a quite a tricky balance especially nowadays when you know you see all these headlines about trade wars and all this kind of stuff Right. One, one thing is very clear, and it does not have to do with politics or econ- economics or anything like that. It has to do with the type of industries that we're in and, and, it, and the essence of, of, the, of every single one of us who, who are in this industry, what we fundamentally in our core, what we need to have, which is that it doesn't really matter whether you're working as a writer or as a director or as a cinematographer or as a, a marketing executive, or a distribution executive, or financial controller for, for a film. Ultimately, what needs to be deep in your heart and you need to identify yourself with is that you like to tell a story and you, you want to be part of the storytelling process and, or even you want to tell a good story or a, a story that is meaningful to you. And if you feel that, then for someone who uh, is making Western stories or making Chinese stories, then it is you need to identify with one or the other. So you and and, and the weird thing about this is this is this is non it, this is it's not logical. It's uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's if you are a Western person that fully embrace the Chinese narrative, somehow the story that you tell hopefully will uh, resonate with the Chinese audience, but it will not detach you with the roots from the West. Mm -hmm. If you are a Chinese filmmaker who wants to tell Western story, you need to fully embrace the West, but your Chinese roots will still be there. Mm-hmm. So there is no in between. Like I do half Western, half Asia, half Western, half China. None of those ever work, and they all fail in terms of uh, audience recognition, critically, and then also in terms of business. You mm-hmm. you have to be genuine, and you have to go all in, and you have to you want to tell their story, and you have to be genuine about it. You cannot be disingenuous about it. So. For me, I, I grew up in Southern California. I consider myself a Californian. Yeah. So that's just in me. So I don't have to go and do anything special about it. For me, mm-hmm. I, I, I make it a point to, to completely immerse myself in the Chinese culture mm-hmm. and to, to, to want to find out what their stories are and what their psyche is, what their mm-hmm. angst are, and how they feel about themselves and about the world. And then, then from their point of view, if I see that there are stories that are, that are strong and worth telling, then I would, I would, I would want to be part of it. Yeah. But if we do these, you know, sometimes we get these scripts where, you know, it's, it's just, it's like, you know, you take, I, I'm always, you know, my, my friends are always making fun of me that I'm always using, making food out and metaphors, which is, mm. you know, a lot of times you get these scripts, it's like on a plate, it's like there's some fried rice, but then there's also a hamburger. And 
neither the Chinese people want to eat it nor the American people want to eat it. Yeah. You know, that's not that, a satisfying know, meal. It's just weird. Yeah. You know, you know, hamburgers and fried rice together doesn't really mix. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it I like that analogy. We get it or all medical, the time. Yeah. yeah. So, and then there's variations of this, right? So, mm -hmm. and then of course, then, so sometimes here, you know, I go to Panda Express, but we all know that's uh, a different kind of ch Chinese food, right? It's right. much more Americanized Chinese food. Yeah. And I think if, you know, if you, if you serve that in China, I think Chinese people will say, well, that's not really Chinese food. So then you go, wait a second, you know, so my narrative is that, you know, is that something more authentic? You know, does it have, not necessarily that it has to have chicken feet in it, but, you know, it is something that, you know, the, you know, like the Kung Pao chicken from American Chinese restaurant is slightly different from the Kung Pao chicken oh, yeah. you get in Sichuan, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're doing the Chinese narrative, then you're making the Chinese version of the Kung Pao chicken versus the American version of the Kung Pao chicken. So you need mm -hmm. to really need to know who's eating that Kung Pao chicken. Mm -hmm. And you can't do the American style Kung Pao chicken for China Chinese people won't eat it and Americans will eat it. And then if you do right. the really Chinese version of Kung Pao chicken, Americans might not eat it because it's too spicy, too numbing. The chicken had bones, so the chicken is too small and, you know, and all this kind of stuff, right? The taste is too, too strong. So in terms of telling stories for the last 15 years, it's been a continuing sort of evolving understanding and learning of what it means to tell a good and strong Chinese stories. And from that, maybe we can tell the world about that story. Yeah. Uh, like you said about how the Hong Kong martial art films later on became worldwide popular and, and, and obtained a lot of resonance. And I think it's the counterintuitive way is that you really need to tell a very good Chinese story first. Yeah. And then from that point on, it will find resonance with story and audience worldwide and then you know i think we were uh fairly successful with the meg even though it's it's you know it's a big monster phenomenally film. successful i would say right and yeah. then and but there's something there you know it's because when after the film came out when we found out from uh, people who've seen the film around the world whether they're in mexico or they're in france or uk us and from china they all liked it enjoyed it for some very specific reasons and not yeah. just because there's a big shark or there's you know jason statham but there right. you know there are other components in there that that some of them are actually more asian surprisingly yeah, yeah. totally yeah and also talk about one thing i noticed also in what you've done in the last 15 years is that you've had this ability to identify directing talent like very early right you worked with Nihao like very early you worked mm -hmm. with Eva very early how I guess how, how were you able to discover these talents did you know they would become you know who they are now and why did you decide you wanted to work with them at that time I, I think that okay that that I think I have some advantage because my dad was a director Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I live with a director. I know how a director will talk. Mm -hmm. I know how a director will write or interact or how to tell a story and how, how to um, behave themselves with other talent and, you know, and how to handle things during stress because I literally <laughs> live my father's life. 
a little kid, you know, until, you know, when I grow up. So mm. when I see a director or a potential director deep inside me, I know whether or not that person's got what it takes to be mm. a director. The only thing that I need to know is whether or not technically they have the skill set and where are they in their technical skill sets that they are. So then mm. I can do a good assessment and then figure out how to support them and help them and to help them to grow. So I didn't intentionally go out to seek out new directors, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, back in the days when we were doing this in the beginning, it was mostly uh, younger directors who, you know, who have the pioneering spirit and who have yeah. the vision to go try something new. So, you know, so we work together. But as that sort of continue, it just turns into that people just kind of know that I'm friendly with new directors and, you know, and that I support them. And, yeah. and you know, and, and I, you know, I, I don't mind, you know, supporting new directors. I, I think that's the only way that, I mean, even in this industry, even in Hollywood, I, I, I think a lot of directors also had mentors and the support, right, from producers or from studio Heads, you know, I mean, there's there's so many stories, right, of, of famous directors who got their start because people help them. So, yeah. and I was helped by people as well. So, uh, you know, I mean, Jet helped me, and I'm sure you know he he supported you, and I have other people that helped me when I was young and beginning. So that I think it's our obligations to to do so, to keep the story going, and to keep the torch going, and to discover new talent that we can work with because they probably have new and exciting stories to tell that we, as we get older, we're seeing things not in a different perspective that they're they're doing. So Mm. that's what happened. Very well said. I like that. And going forward, what are some stories that you want to see that you haven't made yet? Like what, whether it's a, a genre or a particular type of story or a particular narrative, what do you think is, are some of those stories that you want to see that we, the world has not seen yet? For, for me, just, just because of uh, uh, personal preference, I would definitely, if I have the opportunity, I would choose to do more sci-fi and action, obviously. But at a, at a different level, at a narrative level, I think I I'm more interested in telling stories that may be because of historical situation or just that there's just so much going on that some of these stories are not being told that I would like to help bring them to 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 awareness and specifically having to do with I, I think everybody goes to the same stage as they go grow older and stuff but what I am find I'm fascinated with is that we are no different from generations before us, and meaning that they also took risks and they were also out in the world and they did some incredible things. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it would be, you know, we're Asians, right? Chinese. So there are a lot of stories of these people that were brave and they, they took on the world and, and their stories can't be told. And, but, you know, it probably in a genre setting instead of, of, you know, much more prestigious setting because I don't right. think I'm very good at that uh, yet. So haven't learned that yet. You never uh, know. Look at Jason Blum. Now he is competing for Oscars. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, I was surprised when I watched uh, Green Book, right? I yeah. Mean, I I really enjoyed their previous films. I mean, you know, they were extremely yeah. funny. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the Fairly, <laughs> right? Yeah, but yeah. you know, that's I, I'm not worried about that. From but, something about Mary to Green Book, incredible, right? Yeah. So so that's that, and you know, so we've been working on that, and so there's a bit of personal preference in the projects that I like to select to 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 work on in the future but but still mostly genre material hopefully i'll be doing some sci-fi stuff in china you know mm. uh, and sci-fi as in it's a vehicle to help to tell human story yeah. instead of just showing a whole bunch of hardware yes yeah. <laughs> so, or scaring people about the apocalypse or robot right yeah, that see that that in itself i've had such a, a interesting discussion with my chinese colleague it's that there are two concepts that mm. don't really kind of apply to the Chinese culture. One is dystopia, the other is end of the world, mm. which is very Western. And mm. I think it all, I think the end of the world comes from, you know, the, 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 the sort of the biblical sort of yeah. precedence, right? So, but you know, in Chinese narrative, there, in all our mythology, there, there's no end of the world. Mm. I mean, the world ends and it starts again. Mm -hmm. Right. So the whole end of the world sort of concept, it's a very Western concept. And that's mm. very interesting when we apply that to Chinese sci-fi. So that, there you go. That's a hamburger and fried rice. Don't You can't do a Chinese end of the world. Mm. It doesn't work because mm. the world doesn't end for the Chinese culture. Mm. So, you know, you cannot have scenes where, you know, like some generic Chinese city, it's, you know, it's all abandoned and, you know, apocalypse, you know, it looks great visually, but the narrative doesn't really work. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't, you know, it, it, it won't, it won't happen like that. It, you know, we, we you know, we, we, it doesn't work for us like that. So that's very interesting. And then the whole dystopia thing is completely different for us too. So, right. so that's the excitement is because if we could crack that, Mm. If we can, if we can use sci-fi and say, "Nah, end of the world doesn't work for us," but if in a situation where, if end of the world scenario that usually happens in the West would happen in our Asian culture, this is how it would look like, right? Yeah. And then so that will be completely different. And then so mm -hmm. when the Western audience watch it, they'll be like, "Oh, that's interesting. Never yep. thought that it would be like that." Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. So now they have a better understanding of us and that yep. help us to have a dialogue of conversation yep. about, you know, what's different between us and what's similar between us. Right. Right. So that will supersede all the other stuff, you know. So mm. anyway, ambitious, ambitious, but, you know, we'll I love try. that perspective. Yeah. But it'll be so fresh. Right. If you when you find when you find out how to how to go about doing that and telling that story. Another question, and maybe we we'll, can wrap it up in a in a couple more. But it, you know, you've been through your career like at companies that have had partnerships with Warner Brothers in various iterations, and then you've been in China long enough where you we've seen the rise and fall of these companies. What is your perspective on all these changes? And as a producer, like, how do you keep going through all this, all these various turmoils and kind of periods of instability? Well, there's two different things. One is, you know, the sort of the, you know, the rapid life cycle of uh, movie companies from birth to, you know, its demise. That 
I am supported by historical references as a base to to handling you know interactions with this type of business cycles, which is, as you remember, in the 1920s in Hollywood, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of movie companies, mm-hmm. and you know anybody and everybody were making movies. Correct? You know, I might be mis 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 misbroken, but you know there were a lot of film companies back in those days. And a lot of them went around during Great Depression, and then after the Great Depression, it you know there were only a few left, and then a lot of them merged together. But there was a way to do business then, and there was there were reasons why some companies did not survive and some did. So you know by looking back in history, and you find that people are people. It doesn't matter that you're Chinese or、uh, Americans or British or Finnish. People still sort of behave fundamentally similarly. And in that, so then, in terms of business, and it it goes back to this the peculiar nature of our business, which is that fundamentally, yeah, you need to have good, keen, strong, and flexible business sense, but you need to tell good quality stories. If if you remember from the 1920s and 30s, all the stories that we remember from Hollywood are the stories that were told really well. You don't remember any of the stories that. Weren't told well, and those、mm-hmm. companies probably weren't around anymore. So that is, to me anyway, I might be wrong. Is the way to navigate sort of this, this, this growth, continuous, continuing expansions of the the industry is that to to stay true to good storytelling, good quality storytelling. Of course, you need to be, you know, have some business smart, and to. Just sort of for me, everybody is different. Okay, for me to navigate these type of water, I I use Shackleton a bit more than you know Robert Barron. You know,、mm. you know Shackleton is the guy who got stranded in a、uh, in a North Pole. Is it North Pole? Antarctica, and then and then you know and then survived and took his all his entire crew back to、uh, back home without any loss, losing anybody. And everybody was pretty happy, by the way. All his crew、mm-hmm. were happy. So, you know that that's a, a much more stable way for for me than doing, you know, some captain of the industry or you know that kind of way. You know, those are much more risky. The other thing that you were saying, the, I think the first thing that you were saying, shoot, what's the first thing that you was you were asking me? The, well, I was asking you about Warner Brothers, <laughs> the various so, iterations they've been part of, and then now, of course. Not just in China, they're going through something different. But even at the headquarters, they're going through this huge change. I, I wouldn't talk about you know just Warner Brothers specifically, but I would just say that you know I've been involved with many、uh, sort of collaborations between different cultures. This goes even way back to the Jet Li days. You know when we were、yeah. working with the British and the French, we were working with the Japanese, so on and so forth. It's just that there there is a different way of doing business between the different cultures. You know. The, Just the speed, the type of things that a culture will pay attention to versus the、mm-hmm. other, the detail levels, and then of course there's the language issues. And it can be done though, and it can be done very successfully. It just takes a lot of communication. Just、yeah. I, I think doing,、uh, just you know, it's it's not specifically Warner Brothers. I mean, just working with any partner. We, you know, we just did the film with you. You you need to talk three times more than you would usually talk. Just、right. to make sure everybody is on the same page, they understand what's going on, the intention behind the the conversation, 
and mm -hmm. then also the spirit of the conversation. Uh, it, right. th those just you just need to put a lot more effort in it, and if that's whether you're working with a smaller group of people, a smaller company, or big corporation like Warner Brother, it's still communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Over communicate. Yep. That's great. And then my final question is, you know, this life as a producer and just in the film industry or entertainment, people think it's like fun, but and leisurely, which it can be, but also it's a lot of work and you travel a lot too. And a lot of times you're away from your family. For you, how do you like, what do you do for self-care? How do you, you know, keep sane and, you know, keep your energy up, you know, when there's so much <laughs> stuff going on? What are some things you do for self-care? I only have one thing that I do, which is I'm a, Jason, as you know, I'm an avid runner. So I'm a long distance runner. So everywhere I go, no matter where I am, mm. I, the, the first thing I do is, you know, the minute that I'm in a hotel, I look at the map and see where I can go out and do my you know, mm. six mile run. Yeah. So, and then I also gravitate towards selecting production hotels near potential running areas. <laughs> really? Yes. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So if like if I'm producing a movie, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't really care about, you know, of course the movie stars and the director needs to be in their five star hotels, but yeah. I don't really need to be in a five star. I you know, I would rather be with the crew yeah. at a hotel that is near either a park or yeah. some kind of uh river that has a running track, you know, or you know, or some sort of a stadium. So yeah. then I can go and do my runs in the morning oh, or cool. at night. And um, and different people do different things. Some people yeah. meditate. Some people do yoga. I do yeah, running, right. and running is type of uh, meditation for me mm -hmm. because as you do long distance run, sometimes when you run more than an hour, sometimes you know I run for two hours, you mm -hmm. you kind of process a lot of things yep. as you are running. Uh, don't run yep. on the street; you get hit by cars. So yeah. I'm always trying to find areas where, you know, there's no, you know, like I, you know, I'm on the Riviera trail or inside a park. So you, yeah. you could zone out, let your brain sort of unwind mm. and it kind of go through a sort of categorizing things mm. and, you know, processing things until all of that is processed and then you're clear. Then, then you, you know, you exfoliate, you get rid of all your toxins and then you sweat it out, you drink a lot of water. And then, mm -hmm. so you de-stress and yeah. I've been doing this now for 15 years, 16 years, and it's been working for me, you know, because it's very stressful being, uh, some, be, you know, doing this kind of work and a lot of travel. So you have to find something. And of course, don't, you know, go to drugs or go to alcohol, uh, do something healthy. And for me, running, it's, it's something that I do. And then I make it a, I intentionally compete or participate in an mm. official marathon every year. So that kind of right. helps me to design my exercise schedule for, for, for a year. Mm -hmm. uh, so that way, you know, you have a goal in the back of your mind that you have to go and oh. make sure you do all these things while you're still working. So that's you really know, cool. Yeah, this is, you know, that's what I do. And I, I really enjoy it. Do you have a competition this year that you're in? I was thinking about joining the Beijing Marathon, which I actually haven't mm. run before, or okay. the Shanghai Marathon. But because of the COVID, they haven't really announced yeah. it right. officially yet. So we're waiting right. for the website to open so that we can sign up, you know.
That's cool. I, I, I love your perspective on it because like you said, everyone's different. But what I appreciate about what you said is that when most people talk about running, they talk about like fitness, exercise, like body. And you talked about that, but your focus is more on like the mental side of it, the clarity, the stress, the mental health, that kind of the, the, the focus. And that's, that's, a, that's a great perspective to have. Yeah, it, it's two things. I mean, one, it's uh, physiological. You're self-medicating, really, mm-hmm. because, you know, any form of exercise, if you do for uh, a long enough period, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, if it's rigorous enough, you know, your, your body, you know, pumps out all of these uh, hormones and, you know, all, all of this, this, this chemical Toxin. that makes you, makes you happy yeah. oh, that, for the yeah. next two days, you sure. know, so... So then you don't need anything else because your body is actually, you know, self-medicating Amazing. and it's all natural. Yep. So, you know, the, the sort of runner's high, but it's not a mm-hmm. runner's high. It's, you know, any kind of workout high, right? And yep. then so I, I've actually, you know, literally have experienced that where you're encountering something very difficult that you have to deal with. But if you have that sort of body's adjusted body dealing with it, you have a smile on your face mm-hmm. dealing with that problem. But right. if I haven't run for three days right. and I'm dealing with that problem, you're grouchy. And then yep. my colleagues now know me so well, they'll be like, Beaver, you haven't run for two days, right? I'm <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll be like, don't talk about it. Go for a run and come back and talk about this later. You know? And then I'll be like, that's right. I should go running. So that's the, yeah. the, the, the physiological part. But the other mm-hmm. part is what I just said, which is completely spiritual and mental. Mm-hmm. And and you know everybody do it differently, but for me, running it's 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 it really works for me. Scuba diving will be great too, but you can't go scuba diving every day, right? So yes, I love scuba diving. That's awesome. That's a diff- different form of meditation. It's amazing. I love. Yeah, that. you achieve sort of the same Zen state once you mm-hmm. get to a certain place. You know, like when you're scuba diving. Yeah. There's that, that sweet spot where you have neutral buoyancy. Yeah. It's floating there. You're not going yeah. up. You're not so going cool. down. And you're just there, right? You look mm-hmm. up. You look down. You look left and right. It's blue. And then maybe there's some fish. And you don't have mm-hmm. to do anything, yeah, right? And then all you hear is the bubbles, yep. right? So running for me sometimes at that point is you are also in that state of mind where you're like, wow, I'm just running, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm clear. Yep. And then, and then that, then, then you get your balance, you know? Yeah. Cool. Well, Beaver, thank you so much for taking the time and being on this podcast and doing this with me. I've really enjoyed this experience and of course have enjoyed knowing you throughout all these years and look forward to your next films. So good luck with everything. Thank you for being the guest thank you. on yes. my podcast and for being the final guest of season one. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Bye. And there you have it. That wraps up season one of The Linsider. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and to all the episodes in season one. I'm wrapping up, but I am not going anywhere. I'm taking a short break, and I will be back in a couple months with season two. Before I get to season two and before I sign off, I want to acknowledge my friends and supporters and all of you out there who are listening. 
Especially, I want to acknowledge John Der Ho for brainstorming with me the name for the show. And I want to thank those that have helped support the show along the way, including all my guests, all 14 of my guests. I will be doing things to use social media to highlight and promote these episodes even in the next few months. I believe the content is evergreen content. It's not just listening material for 2021 or for these last few months. These are episodes, these are stories that you can listen to whenever and you can learn something about a different perspective. I also want to thank those folks that have contributed to The Insider, like Kenny Liu, like Masumi Tsunoda, like Jin Guan, and other folks out there who have supported the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, whether it's suggestions on guests, suggestions on topics to cover, questions you have about the industry, questions you have about the episodes, about the guests, I'd love to hear from you. So feel free to message me directly, find me on your social media app of choice, and you just have to look up Linsider, and I am open on DMs. Again, this wraps up season one of the Linsider. This is episode 14. I am signing off, but I will not be gone for long. Thank you, thank you, thank you all so much, and I'll see you soon.